0: We could use your help keeping the Omaha History Podcast going. Please consider becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Go to patreon.com Omaha. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It'll help pay the light bill. Welcome to the North Omaha History Podcast with noted author and historian Adam Fletcher Sasse. Each week, Adam takes you on a guided tour through Omaha's dynamic past. In the 1840s, crossing the raging Missouri River was uh, a struggle. Men, women, and children in schooners, on foot and riding horses, had to get across the water in a way uh, they would survive and would keep all their supplies and possessions intact. It took a 100 years to build a permanent structure across the water, so uh, today... Adam is going to explore the bridge, the ferries, the politics, the economics, and more. The history of the Mormon Bridge, Hey, Adam? Steve, it's a heck of a story that has, like you said, I mean, a real long timeline. It goes all the way back to the 1840s. At that point, there was already a really long timeline. The Louisiana Purchase had happened. Lewis and Clark went west way back in 1806 and came all the way up the Missouri River, and just lots of exploration had happened. The Nebraska area at that point was called Indian Territory, and it stretched all the way from Oklahoma to the northern border with Canada and all the way west out to Montana and beyond even. That gigantic region was home to so many tribal nations. Many of the names that resonate with people in Omaha today, like the Poncas and the Pawnee, And the Omaha and the Winnebago, Uh, they were all throughout that region at that point, along with uh, lots of the Sioux nations. You know, there are a half dozen or a dozen Sioux nations, among them the Lakota and the Nakota uh, and several others. They all were roaming through this area. Some of the tribes were more aggressive. Some were more calm. uh, Some were working actively with the United States during this era in order to uh, ensure their own longevity, while others were aggressively fighting against the United States, especially when it came to around the 1840s. Uh, The 1840s, you know, everybody remembers the, the San Francisco 49ers who are named after the gold rush of 1849. And lots of people know about the gold rushes that happened in Montana and Alaska and all these different places, California, of course. But uh, one of the biggest boons to Western development came right through North Omaha. And that was the uh, Mormon pioneers. The Mormon pioneers were fleeing from Illinois and uh, Points East, starting in New York, where they were persecuted for their religious beliefs. Lots of the Uh, traditional Christians and non-religious people of the East were very leery of the Mormons and their new religion. And uh, they chased them out of towns and they murdered people and they caused all kinds of pain and suffering. And so the Mormons decided that they were going to go to the western United States and claim an area to make their own. And sure enough, they did. Staking out, they got to the uh, Iowa side of the Missouri River, north of Canesville And they set up some uh, camping areas on the eastern side of the river, where we would think of the town of the Missouri Valley being today. Uh, They set up some some small camping areas there in the uh, spring of 1846. And in the summer, they received permission – in the early summer, they received permission from the uh, tribal Indian agent – Who was located in that area. The Indian agent, he really took care of the Omaha Indians and uh, the Ponca and a little bit of the Pawnee, and he brokered a deal between the Omaha and the Mormons to camp along the western edge of the Missouri River, so cross the river and get right over into that area. The Mormons went across and immediately went and staked out a claim uh, where we think of Mormon Bridge Road being today. At the intersection of Mormon Bridge Road and Young Street, there's actually a historical marker there for the old and original uh, Mormon settlement in the area that was called Cutler's Park. The group that settled that area was led by a man named Cutler, and uh, they laid out an entire town, set up housing for 2,600 people. And when I say housing, that's a little bit generous. I mean, they were shacks and shanties and lean-tos. There were sod houses, but a lot of tents and a lot of wagons in place, as it were. But they set them up on regular lots as if it were a town. For 2,600 people, it was a pretty massive area. They had several people die with that many people. And in that era, when there was no real uh, institutionalized medicine, uh, as it were, people died. They had a cemetery at Cutler's Park. But what they found out a month into staying there, the tribes went back to the Indian agent and say, hey, they went too far west. We said that they could camp down by the river and they're way out in our hills where we'd go hunt. So the Indian agent came to the Mormons and said, you guys got to move. You're in the wrong area. So they closed down Cutler's Park. They uh, took out all of the amenities that they had put in and they moved them all down by the river. And they staked out a claim on a it's called a bench. It's a flat plateau area uh, that's up above the Missouri River right there. And if you look at geography maps, you'll see that there's a bit of a hillside, more of one that used that used to exist than what does now because it's been graded down, but along McKinley Road and whatnot. And they laid out a town that went from uh, Ferry Street, where Ferry Street is today, on the north, all the way south down to Weber, and then uh, from the Missouri River all the way Uh, west to where we think about North 33rd Street being or so. Inside of that area, they laid out a grid pattern town, and that became known as Winter Quarters. Uh, The town of Winter Quarters had a park, had a town square, had a school, had a fire department, and had all these amenities. So that's a lot to say that they needed a way to get across the river on a regular basis. Staking out and and laying down the area where a ferry would travel, they originally had a flat-bottom ferry that went from from the eastern side of the river to the western side of the river. It charged money to non-Mormons, and for Mormons, they brought them across, and they paid a more nominal fee. But uh, long story short is that that ferry ran for a very long time, even after the Mormons left in mass. So they got there in 1846. They left in a pri- – starting in 1847, they wintered there, of course, and, and the following spring, they began to leave, and uh, a lot of folks – most of the town was gone by 1848. However, a few people did hang on. The ferry continued to run. Uh, ferry Street was so named because it was the place where uh, the settlers would cross the river and then land on Ferry Street and continue on that road out of town and uh, out towards where the – town of DeBolt was, and then further on west from there. That ferry was supposed to be temporary. In 10 years, in a decade after the Winter Quarters was there, uh, there were at least three or four different operators of the North Mormon Ferry. Now, it was called the North Mormon Ferry because there was also a South Mormon Ferry, which was down by South Omaha, and where we think of that being today. But the North Mormon Ferry had Three or four different owners in the next decade between 1846 and 1856. And one of the things that they discovered inside of that period is that the bottom of the river, of the Missouri River, from side to side right there, is made of really thick granite and uh, limestone and some kind of composite that forms a rock bottom on the Missouri River. It's that rock bottom was so important because it would allow for cattle to cross uh, not on the ferry uh, and to successfully be able to get over to the other side. But it also laid the foundations for an imagination of a bridge to cross the Missouri river right there. And that was the beginning of the vision as it were for the Mormon bridge that we have in place today. The, ferry continued to run eventually they took that flat bottom ferry and they suspended it on a cable that went from uh one side of the river to the other side what they had experienced initially was a drift of course the Missouri River has a really fast current right there and uh this drift would carry the ferry you would launch on the north side of or, i'm sorry on the east side of the Missouri River you would launch north of where the bridge is today Sometimes as far as a half mile north of where the bridge is today, and the ferry would drift you all the way over to where Ferry Street is right now because of that current was pushing you downriver the entire time. Eventually, they suspended this rope across, and they narrowed that gap by more than three-quarters of a mile, and it was a a slight jog that it took uh, the ferry from one side to the other. By 1849, there was a license that was given to George Smith uh, by Pottawattabee County, uh, and that license allowed Smith to run the ferry for the next 12 years. It it ran for just a couple of years, but all the same, Smith had the first license. The costs back then in 1849 – ready for this, Steve – it cost 50 cents to take your carriage across on the ferry. 50 cents was a lot of money, but if you're riding in a carriage – couple of bits were no big deal to you. Uh, all four-wheeled carriages, like the schooners that we think of and things like that, they co- also cost 50 cents. They weighed down a lot and took a lot of energy to get across the ferry in a good way. There were two-wheeled carriages and carts that had to come across. They cost 35 cents apiece. Every yoke of oxen was 12 cents apiece. So if you had a team of six oxen, which would have been a huge team, uh, you were paying whew, almost more than a half buck. Loose cattle were $0.01 each, sheep were $0.02 each, hogs were $0.03 each. So you get a sense of uh, all of the varying values of different livestock at that point. Horses, mules, and donkeys were $0.10 each. A man on a horse was $0.25, and a person walking on foot was $0.10 to get across the ferry right there. Uh, One of the other advantages that they had with the ferry at that point is that there was a, a sandbar in the Missouri River, and so if you didn't land right at Ferry Street, you would land on the sandbar, and it would ferry you. Take you, you could cross right there. and It wasn't a huge deal, but that was all the way through uh, 1852. In 1852, it was interesting because uh, the ferry became known as Golden Gate because there were so many prospectors who were coming across. You know, the gold speculators who were crossing the river right there. In uh, around 1854, remember that's when the picnic happened in omaha july 4th 1854 uh when the the folks from what was then called council bluffs after canesville they'd come across they were speculating and they decided heck we're going to make a lot of money off this place and they declared that omaha city would exist well right about that same time there was a guy here on the north end uh, he lived over on the iowa side and his name was james mitchell Mitchell was an interesting character. He was a speculator. He was trying to make some money. He, he did a little bit of gold work. He did a little bit of land speculating, did all kinds of different things. But when he saw that the Mormons were leaving, Mitchell made a bid, and he started buying up the winter quarters. He bought up the old buildings. He bought up the old land, and eventually he put together a nice section of land that he described as 25 acres of land uh, at the ferry landing. He also owned half of the ferry rights, the license that was sold, and uh, he owned this uh, steam ferry boat. Uh, Mitchell put in the first steam ferry boat. Mitchell wasn't an old man. He uh, was born in 1810 and had come to Iowa to make his wealth and got there in the mid-40s with the Mormons or or right after the Mormons, and he uh, really saw the potential of what would become winter quarters and later on would become the town of Florence. So it was that year that uh, Mitchell had laid his claim and really began to stake out things that uh, uh, he went to the Nebraska Territorial Legislature and he got uh, the the Florence Ferry Corporation established uh, in the Nebraska, the first Nebraska Territorial Legislature. That was in 1855. It was 1856 when uh, the first attempt to build the Florence Bridge was made. That's right. The Florence Bridge, starting in 1855, it was going to be a thing. The Nebraska Territory Legislature incorporated the Florence Bridge Company for the first time that year. And uh, James Mitchell, along with Peter Sarpy and James Parker, uh, one of the big landowners o- there, in the Florence area, and also the operator of the Florence Bank. They were all involved in that Florence Bridge Company. So the legislature said that uh, a good and sufficient ferry boat at said point for the accommodation of the inhabitants of the adjunct country and the public generally, they thought that that was a good idea. And uh, Mitchell went ahead and started working it. He went back east and tried to convince the United States Congress to dump a bunch of money into uh, putting a bridge across at Florence. Uh, Mitchell wanted to see that bridge right where the ferry was. He, uh, again, I mean, Mitchell was out to make money, right? And, and along with his ownership of the ferry, he also owned the Florence Mill, which was likely originally built by Brigham Young, or at least his party, and uh, the rest of the Mormon pioneers when they came through. Along with... Uh, it, it, Mitchell owned other things, the Daily Florence Courier newspaper. He owned a salon. He owned a bunch of other businesses. He started running the, the steamer ship from uh, Florence all the way down to St. Louis in 1856. And uh, his his business acumen was so well known that uh, the a newspaper out of Omaha called the Nebraskanian. It was one of the first newspapers. In 1857, they called James Mitchell the great mogul of rock bottom they were kind of referring to Florence's rock bottom at that point, at least as a nickname. So Florence began to uh, grow and take off. Mitchell named the town after his niece, who was a very real person, by the way, it was interesting. They, they had a lot of times that where it actually looked like that bridge might get built. They sold uh, interest in the bridge company so that they could raise money. Uh, they sold stock in order to raise money to build a bridge. They got about a hundred thousand dollars raised and, uh, they they had these subscriptions to the bridge company that they were selling as well. So uh it was interesting then, uh, when you look at that bridge company investors. In by eighteen fifty-seven they had two hundred thousand dollars raised. And you know, you have lots of popular names. You have folks like Mitchell himself who put in for twenty-five thousand dollars, that made him the largest stockholder. But you also had Cook Sergeant and Parker, the the bank folks, they were in for ten thousand bucks. Uh, you had John Bracken, who was in for 5000 a bunch of $5,000 guys. The $10,000 folks included people like uh, Chipman, who ran a big lumber concern in Florence and in the Ponca Hills right there. And Bryant, who was a uh, speculator, a land speculator, who had a bunch of land around the region. Uh, Chapman, who was a cattleman uh, in the western area beyond the Mormon Bridge Road. All these folks were invested in the bridge, and they really wanted to see it go. So Mitchell goes to Washington, D.C. in 1857, and uh, it didn't work. Uh, he didn't get the, the – he lobbied, but he didn't get the money that he thought that he needed in order to start the bridge. And honestly, at that point, not having a bridge built at Florence in 1857 really hurt the town. In three years, the whole – Florence bank collapsed. Florence lost the ability to become the capital of Nebraska, and uh, it just – it wasn't working. James Parker, that landowner that I mentioned who was involved in the bank, who ran the bank, the Florence Bank right there on North 30th, Uh, James Parker, he went and got James Durant and Peter Day from the Union Pacific Railroad to come to Florence. Uh, Parker walked them through Florence. Apparently, Mitchell wasn't available for whatever reason. But Parker walked these two officials with the Union Pacific. He walked them through town, and he showed them all the greatness of the town and all the wonders of the river and really, really lobbied these two directly to – Day in town to really appreciate Florence, but to see the potential for putting the first Union Pacific Railroad bridge across the river right there uh, in Florence. A few weeks later, though, they got a letter saying that uh, that wasn't going to happen. One of the big setbacks was that there was high water flooding at the time when uh, Durant and Day came through, and that really damaged Florence's chance to get the bridge. So uh, with all those losses stacking up, I'm sure that it must have been hard on James Mitchell, this, this visionary. And he died just three years later at the age of 49. Uh, a lot of people said at the time that he was brokenhearted from losing the bridge project. It wasn't long, though, before folks began to envision and dream and hope. Uh, the ferry kept running across the river. But in 1872, uh, Omaha was chosen by the Union Pacific officially to build their bridge across And that dashed the dreams of Florence again. (laughs) It just – it was rough. 1855, 1885, uh, just a couple of years after that, uh, the Missouri River Bridge was built in Omaha. The Chicago, St. Paul, and Minneapolis and Omaha Railway began digging for footings on a bridge there at the Florence Ferry. It was called the Omaha Road, and they were going to put it across right there. Alas, it didn't quite work out. and the Footings for the bridge sat empty for a really long time. In the 1960s, one of the old-timers in Florence was interviewed, uh, and he described the flatboat ferries across the river from the 1890s. He said that uh, there was an unpaved street from 30th to the river north of the waterworks, and that would have been the uh, ferry street that we call it today. Somebody put a steel cable across the river from the end of that street all the way over into Iowa, and the ferry was just a wooden barge. It was big enough for one car or one wagon, but there was no motor on it. It hung on to the cable, and the current pushed it back and forth. So that doesn't sound like a steam-driven ca- steam engine to me. That steam engine, though, it came and went throughout the years, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. In 1905, the Florence Improvement Club tried to get a bridge built. Didn't work. 1913, they tried again. Didn't work. 1922, they tried again. Didn't work. In 1936, the third really formal attempt to get a bridge built across was made by the Florence Bridge Commission. The Florence Bridge Commission was incorporated by the Nebraska legislature for the third time in 1936. And so they were piping, they were ready to go. There were federal monies that were floating around uh, through the Works Progress Administration and other federal attempts to fight the Great Depression. However, it didn't work. That's right. It was a really hard time getting that bridge built. By the nineteen twenties, the Florence ferry was actually that landing area was owned by the by m u d They had to lease out the land to the ferry operators and it and it always worked out but nothing like getting a bridge put in in the late nineteen forties uh there was a new bridge commission founded. This bridge commission came out of World War II, and there was all this gung-ho-ness and and willingness to do big civic projects because they were carrying the energy of the Works Progress Administration and other federal work from the 1930s. They were carrying the energy of the post-war boom, and they really wanted to get this thing to happen. So the fifth and final launch to build a bridge was made by the North Omaha Bridge Commission starting in 1950 when they were incorporated by the Nebraska legislature. The North Omaha Bridge Commission fought and fought and fought. They were looking for money from the 1946 General Bridge Act, and in 1951, ground was broken to construct the bridge across the Missouri River at Florence. Uh, There was a gigantic groundbreaking ceremony, and the World Herald reported that uh, seven social clubs from north of Ames were sponsoring the celebration. There was a gigantic celebration meal held at the Birchwood Club, uh, and the gathering that happened on the Nebraska side to celebrate the launch of this bridge construction was huge. There were thousands of people there. There was a gigantic bandstand built and all kinds of shenanigans happening uh, in 1951. That was in May of 1951. The bridge building wasn't without controversy though. I can't quite find out why, or I haven't found out why people would have been against it at that point. But in September, 1951, just five months after construction began, there was a massive vandalism spree that left a dozen construction vehicles on the site with more than $15,000 in damage. Steve, they jacked up the engines, they ripped up the wheels, they tied up the, all kinds of different motors and things that were supposed to work, and it took a while to repair them. The newspaper report suggested that it was done by uh, folks who were knowledgeable about the machines, though. So it might have been a labor problem. It's hard to say. There weren't any follow-up reports suggesting that the police ever found out who did it, though. So that happened. There was a public sale of $3.45 million in bonds, and uh, the commission sold out of bonds in just an hour and a half after that sale was launched. So this was primed and ready to go. That early construction focused on building 14 piers across the river. Three of them were in the limestone footing of the riverbed with the western— Uh, I'm sorry, with the eastern and central piers of the bridge located at 26 and 16 feet below the water's surface. The third westernmost pier is at 48 feet below the water's surface. Challenge to me, uh, they uh, they ran into some road bumps because of the Korean War. Uh, But they succeeded in securing 3,800 tons of steel for the project. So they had their steel. They had the footings in. 1952, the highway ferry stopped running Uh, in December. The original span, uh, December of nineteen forty or nineteen fifty-two, the original span of the Missouri River Bridge at Florence opened and was called the Mormon Pioneer Memorial Bridge. It carried a two-way traffic across the river on a twenty-six-foot-wide deck, and uh, of course connected Iowa and Nebraska across the Missouri River right there. There was a two-day dedication celebration that started on June first of nineteen fifty-three. All the ballyhoo was made about the Mormon roots of the effort. Uh, And the president of the Mormon church actually came to Omaha and came to Florence to cut the ribbon for the ceremony. And it was really exciting for folks. The bridge followed the original route of the 1846 Mormon Trail from the Iowa side to Winter Quarters and beyond. And uh, there was a big feature printed in the Mormon magazine about it, in the church magazine, And uh, the church president detailed the history of the bridge and all kinds of different things. So maybe the most important part of it, though, is that the ceremony started on the anniversary of Brigham Young's birthday. So there was a real sense of heritage and a real sense of uh, staying connected to the roots of the town and the area and the cause of the original bridge wanting to go in the first place. One of the first features of that new bridge, though, was uh, the Mormon Bridge Toll Plaza. This toll plaza was put in to collect tolls. Uh, from each lane on the original bridge the original toll was 35 cents later on it was increased to 50 and uh, in the last two years of the toll existence it was 75 cents to cross the building the bridge in 1979 the toll house was closed permanently and it was moved from the bridge over to dick collins road and later on to willett street where it still stands today it's at 3010 willett uh that building was only built in nineteen fifty one. People romanticize and think it was the ferry building and all kinds of things. It was just the toll house building and it was only from nineteen fifty one. But at this point, that's seventy-one year or sixty-nine years old. And so it's getting some age on it itself. And it's a neat little building to look at. Really gives you a sense of the possibilities of the town. It has a nice little mural up top that was from uh there that that replicates the original mural that was on the bridge plaza. So that's kind of neat to look at. In uh, 1956, Iowa transportation officials turned the uh, old Mormon Bridge Road that runs from Missouri Valley over to the bridge. They turned it into a highway, and uh, later on, more than 20 years later, uh, a four-lane highway replaced that trail road altogether, connecting the bridge to I-29 there in Iowa. In uh, 1979, Nebraska and Iowa went into a formal state uh, interstate compact to ensure the mutual governance over the bridge. And then in 1975, the second span of the bridge was completed. And even though it was structurally similar to the original, it wasn't identical. Uh, it, the, the process of constructing it was a lot faster and smoother than the original process 22 years earlier. But in 1979, when that was put in, uh, the bridge was complete. And a huge celebration was held in uh, April of 79 to celebrate the opening of I-680, And the end of the bridge construction process and the connection of North Omaha to the rest of the interstate system. There was a huge dance, fireworks over the bridge, all this fanfare, neat stuff going on. Let's fast forward all the way to present time, Steve. Uh, In 2019, the Department of Transportation wrapped the bridge in these huge pink tarps and they painted it. This is the first time that the color of the bridge has changed in all these years, from 79 all the way till now. So for 40 years or so, we've looked at a green bridge. And all of a sudden, it's no longer green, but instead blue. And that blue is startling. It's beautiful. And it's really creating a, a really neat legacy and, and look for the project. It was wrapped in those pink tarps to uh, prevent the lead, the lead paint. You know, they'd used lead paint on this thing ever since it was first built uh, back in the 50s. And so they captured that lead paint to keep it from poisoning the river more. And, yeah, that, that project is ongoing and will be fully restored this year at some point. If anybody's interested, you can go and check out a historical marker that was put on the northwest corner of J.J. Pershing Drive and Dick Collins Road in 1931. Uh, that historical marker is uh, right there as a real legacy, uh, going, uh, marking the heritage of the ferry and today's bridge. Um, Despite its historical relevance, though, uh, the bridge hasn't been put on the – it hasn't been listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and the city of Omaha hasn't designated an official Omaha landmark. Maybe that's coming down the road, though. That's a little bit about the history of the uh, Florence Ferry, some of the economics, social, and uh, cultural relevance of the bridge, and where it stands today, the Florence Ferry and the uh, Mormon Bridge across the Missouri River. Thanks for listening to the North Omaha History Podcast with noted author and historian Adam Fletcher Sasse. Join us next week as Adam takes you on another guided tour through Omaha's dynamic past.